to our study in the book of Acts. And uh, we're not coming back just to simply finish it. We're coming back because it's going to teach us some things. Things we have to be reminded as we walk with the Lord. Um, as we move forward as a church, all of us need periodic and we need regular revival. Now, I want to do something to kind of lock that word in for you and that whole concept in. Are you ready? Throughout this message, when, you know, people, other people have done this, but we're going to do this this morning. Uh, when I say the word revival, I want you to respond, hallelujah. Hallelujah. You know what hallelujah means? It's an imperative. It means praise the Lord, and it's kind of a command. You praise the Lord because it's so true. So when I say the word revival, hallelujah, hallelujah. praise the Lord. When I say the word revival, you say hallelujah. And as I do that throughout this message, I want to encourage you to say that, to apply faith, to pronounce the truth of this word and the truth of our need to experience this as God's people. So I'm going to define this word. Are you ready? Revival. It's a spiritual awakening in the lives of Christians. It is a spiritual awakening. You're a Christian. You're a believer. But you and I both need spiritual awakenings at times. It's a renewed passion for God. It's a renewed devotion to Him. And this renewed passion and devotion for Him results in some things. And this is what it results in. We have this definition up on the board, if they'll put it up. Go ahead, you can write it down. This is, this is the definition I'm working through. It's a renewed passion for God and devotion to Him that results in these things, in repentance and in change in how a believer lives. You actually change and you repent. You actually then have a renewed sense of power in your witness, where before you didn't have that kind of power, and then others' response to God's movement in your life is greater than it once was. You have more effect. You touch people deeper when you experience revival. Okay, there we go. Somebody staying with me. All right, when you hear the word, just give it to me. That means you're tracking with me. Over and over since the first century, Christians have experienced waves of God's renewing grace, and it's energized them, and it's energized the church, and it's helped the church to keep moving into new seasons of advancement and growth. It has because they've experienced God's movement. These revivals, they include three types. There are personal quickenings that people have, and that's where an individual experiences a spiritual renewal where an individual gets a re, uh, just kind of a newfound focus on Jesus. They draw closer to him. They have a new hunger for his word. They have a new desire to live a holy life. It's not because they're supposed to. They really want to inside. Revivals of local churches in. Hallelujah. Because churches need revival, don't they? Amen. And that means that particular churches can experience that, and it can even move from one church to other churches. And then there are social awakenings. These are bigger movements. Social awakenings, like the Jesus movement, 
I kind of felt like I came to the Lord at the tail end of the Jesus People Movement and the Jesus Revolution back in the late 70s. Um, God did something great. People have been praying for a long time. People have been seeking the Lord for a long time, and then God moved powerfully, and thousands upon thousands of people came to Christ and turned their lives around. They had new enthusiasm. What about the charismatic renewal? That brought new enthusiasm. It brought new focus on the fact that, indeed, God might be active in our lives today through miracles and signs and wonders. Man, this kind of stuff moved, and it moved on a global and national level. And we have that kind of stuff that happens within the realm of revival. Hallelujah. Our society now, we find ourselves going deeper and deeper into crisis. We're, we're more politically and ideologically diverse and polarized like never before, almost. We have a disappearing work ethic. We have rampant drug use. Folks are choosing suicide more and more to deal with their problems in life. There's a total confusion on a scale that we've not seen in our modern day when it comes to sexual ethics and sexual identity. It's just like, it's just totally changed all of a sudden. And when you look at statistics, you see that it just, bam! It, it just went like wildfire. There are all sorts of maladies and problems that we face, and many people are calling for revival right now. They're calling for another great awakening. They're saying we're in a need for that. And, and we know that many Christians personally need it. They feel like they need it. But how many of us have ever experienced a great revival? How many of us walk in revival? How many of us do? How many of us know what it really means? Well, I'm here to tell you today that the culture of Ephesus, where we're coming back to in Acts chapter 19, it was similar to our modern day society. <coughs> As a whole, Ephesus was prosperous, it was sophisticated, it was highly cultured. But it was a little different than our, our culture or our society of our day. It was locked into idolatry, and maybe we feel we are getting there too. Locked into idolatry, locked into pagan practices and superstitions. And maybe that really is true of us. And even though Paul was there for about three years, and he preached and he taught, and God did extraordinary miracles through him <clears throat> on a level that had never been done before, just as he had done with Peter early on in the book of Acts, what you find out is revival. It didn't come until the third year of his ministry. It, it, all of a sudden something happened after he'd been there a couple years and into that third year, something flipped a switch. Something changed. And it didn't seem to come as a result of Paul's preaching or his miracles. And that was what was wild about it. We know Paul was praying, the church was praying, but there was something else that flipped the switch and all of a sudden, revival. It happened. So I want you to read with me Acts chapter 19. Uh, the word revival will not be in that passage. So, but it was truly happening. And we're going to talk about it. So... If you've got a Bible, turn to Acts chapter 19, and we're going to read verses 11 through 20. And it says this, 
God did extraordinary miracles through Paul. So that even handkerchiefs and aprons that had touched him were taken to the sick, and their illnesses were cured, and the evil spirits left them. You know, you kind of, you, you see some of that in our modern society with our televangelists doing things like that. This was not the same. Uh, this was different, but we're not going to go into that today so much. Um, but let's keep going. And it says some Jews who went around driving out evil spirits. So there's some Jews and they had, they found out, you know, you can make money through uh, religion. And uh, Paul was doing some really pretty outrageous things. And, uh, and so they're thinking maybe we can make a buck off of this. And uh, so they had, you know, they had some insight into delivering people from evil spirits. And what they believed during their society back then, that if you had the right name, or the name of a more powerful spirit, you could neutralize the, the, the work of certain spirits in people's lives, or you could even cast out spirits in the name of a more powerful spirit. That's what they believed. But let's go on. So apparently these Jews went around driving out evil spirits, and guess what? Everybody's looking for something that works, right? And so it says that they tried to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus. There's power in his name. There is no more powerful name than the name of Jesus. And so they tried to invoke the name of Jesus over those who were demon-possessed. They would say, in the name of Jesus whom Paul preaches, I command you to come out. The seven sons of Siva was a group, and they were a group of seven, and they worked to deliver people in this way. They were, they were the sons of a Jewish high priest, and it said they were doing this. Well, one day, our scripture tells us, the evil spirit who they were speaking to and saying, come out in the name of Jesus who Paul preaches, he said to them, wow, I love this, if I can find my place. He said to them, Jesus I know, and Paul I know about. But who are you, sons of Siva? Who are you? And then the man who had the evil spirit jumped on them and overpowered them all. He gave them such a beating that they ran out of the house naked and bleeding. Wow. <coughs> what a result. But when the, this became known to the Jews and Greeks living in Ephesus, the people who had believed in Ephesus, they were all seized with fear. And the name of the Lord Jesus was held in high honor. And many of those who believed now came and they openly confessed what they had done. A number who had practiced sorcery brought their scrolls together. They burned them publicly and when they <coughs> calculated the value of the scrolls, the total came to 50,000 drachmas. You know what that means? It's at least 5 million bucks plus. It could be as much as $10 million. That's a pretty big chunk of change to throw out there and burn. You could have made a lot at your yard sale on those books. But they said, no, these things aren't going on any longer. We're getting rid of them, even though we might have some first edition. We're getting rid of these things. And so they got rid of them. And it says, and in this way, the word of the Lord spread widely, and it grew in power. 
Do you saw it just happened there? Revival just happened in Ephesus. Revival, amen, happened in Ephesus. How, how, how does revival come? How does it come? And what are some of the often, often, I can't say that word, you know why, right? What are some of the signs of authenticity? I'm going to say it that way. That tells you that indeed revival is of the Lord and it's come for real. Well, let's start with the first point that I've got there. What you discover is when revival comes, all of a sudden the top priority becomes Jesus and it's Jesus over pragmatism. It's Jesus over pragmatism. And you're kind of going, hmm, I didn't see the word pragmatism there or pragmatic in our scripture. Oh, it was all over our scripture. It's one of the first things I notice as I begin to study it and look at it. Wow. I want to start with this. First of all, most of us are Americans here, aren't we? Yeah? If you're an American and you're an American society, you're looking for things that work. Somebody say amen to that. You are looking for things that work. Don't hand me a tool that doesn't get the job done. I don't want it in my hand. I want a tool that works efficiently. I do. That's why when electric string trimmers came out, I said, uh-uh. You give me that gas-powered one that makes all that noise and pollutes the universe that's got like a four-cylinder engine on it, and I'm going to string trim with that thing because it'll cut small trees down, and I want the job to get done and get done right and quick because I'm American, and I want tools that work, right? Well, you know, you want diets that work too, don't you? Somebody say amen. 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 So no matter what, people will line up for a diet that really works and where people lose weight no matter how bizarre that diet is. If it has evidence that it works and it works quickly, man, I'm going to get on it because I want that beach body by vacation. Amen? Right? Well, I'm not sure there's a diet out there that's going to work on me by vacation. But I would love to see it if it did. That'd be wonderful. We want a diet that works. But you know the same is true in the spiritual realm. Some will say things like this. You know what? I tried praying, but it didn't work. I tried Christianity, but it didn't work. I prayed and I prayed. And I believed and I believed and I asked God to give me what I, what I desired and what I was looking for, but I heard nothing. I didn't get what I want. Prayer doesn't work. Have you ever heard that before? Prayer doesn't work. What are you talking about? God is not there. He's not answering. He's only a figment of your imagination. Because I ain't tried, and I got nothing. It doesn't work. Yet, if, if these things do work, if the tool, if the diet, if prayer, if it does work, well, I'm going to stick with it then, or at least I'll stick with it unless I find something more novel that works or appears to work better. Because so many of us want just things that work, not things that are right. But if something doesn't work, that means if it doesn't give me what I want, and see, that's really the definition of whether it works. Does it give me what I want? If it doesn't, I'll abandon it. 
And I'll abandon it so quick that most of the time folks in our culture don't really consider that maybe it's not the tools problem or the diet or the prayer, I'm the problem. I'm not doing or seeing things right. I'm, <coughs> I'm the thing that's not working right. And I may need to be changed. I might need to be revived. Oh, I kind of messed with you a little bit. I didn't say revival. I said revived. I might need to be revived. You know, the Ephesians, like many wealthy, educated people, were pragmatists. They are, just like us. If there's one thing we are in the United States, we're pragmatists, right? Because what I just described to you. A pragmatist is guided more by practical considerations than by ideal, by philosophy, by faith, and by obedience to a living, present God. We are driven by practical considerations. Does it work? So we evaluate theories and beliefs and practices in terms of their practical success. Does it work? Does it help me reach my goal? Does it help me get what I want? And we evaluate something that way. But can you see that under this paradigm or under this mindset, everything in life, including spirituality and religion, what we're saying is everything can be scaled. You understand that term? It's a term used in business. It can all be scaled. It can be, it can be reduced down to a recipe that can be duplicated place after place after place. It can be dumbed down, right? Um, it can be mimicked so that we, others can mimic it, and others can duplicate it, and others can do it in other places. And so we begin to look at life that way because we want what's worked. But can you begin to see the trouble with that? Having a pragmatic, a, a pragmatic approach to life, there's real trouble. In our text, what did it say in the very beginning of it? God did extraordinary miracles through Paul at Ephesus. God did. It didn't say Paul did. It said God did. God was using Paul. God was directing Paul. Paul didn't just go, you know what, man, I just really want to do something big for Jesus. I just really see a need over here, and so I see a need and meet a need, and I'm going to go for it, because I can. Paul was not doing that. That's what modern-day people do who are pragmatists. No. Paul was a servant of Jesus, and God was guiding and leading him. And <coughs> our text contrasts this with the pragmatic attempts of these inept uh, Jewish exorcists who tried to mimic what worked. They tried to use the name of Jesus because it worked for Paul and for other believers. They tried to duplicate his miracles. I'm sure that the early church laughed many times when they were recounting the story of these seven guys getting their arrears kicked and getting the hurt put on them and coming out naked. Let me tell you something. If you get in a fight and you walk away with no clothes on, you lost the fight. Amen? You're the one who lost the fight. Because not only did these de this demon, who was one of them against seven, so it shows you the power that they'll have, he just said, I'm not just going to kick your rear, I'm going to humiliate you and let you go off naked and bleeding. <laughs> Let's see if you learn something from this. 
Well, some people did learn something from it. I love it. So by drawing this contrast, Luke wants us to all learn a lesson. These are lessons that many people need to get, whether you're a believer or not a believer, whether you're a faith healer or not, whether you're a follower of somebody who's a word of faith person or whatever. Man, even those who've gone away sad because prayer or Jesus didn't work, you need to get this. Write this in your notes. We should all allow God to use us according to his will and for his glory, but we should never try to use him for our own purposes. It's not going to work. There's only one Lord and God, and you're not it. And it doesn't work that way. So we've got to allow him, allow him to use us according to his will and for his glory, <coughs> but we can't ever go around trying to use him for our own purposes, and yet we do, don't we? See, that was the difference between Paul and these exorcists. Paul was allowing God to use him according to God's will and for his glory, but these spiritual charlatans were trying to use God for their own financial profit. They were trying to use, and then the ones who hired them, they hired these exorcists, they were trying to use God's power for their own purposes. But I want you to get this, really, this is what's so important. When we begin to just become pragmatists and we begin to just look for what works, here's what happens. It's probably the reason these guys did this, but it also could be what we're slipping into as believers when we do it. It's because we have no intention to repent of our sins. We have no intention to submit our lives to God's purposes. These guys didn't want to do that. They just wanted what works. They just wanted to do what worked. It became a substitute for Jesus. Pragmatism. Rather, they wanted to use God as an Aladdin genie, didn't they? Right, John? We talked about this. They wanted to use God's Aladdin genie. Come on out. I need one of my, my wishes. Do this. Okay, now, go back in the bottle. Until next time, I need your services. Till next time, I want you to work for me. How dishonoring. How disrespectful. How unright that is. How unrelational that is. And yet, that's what we do. Many in the church attempt to use God for health or wealth or whatever favors they desire. I'm going to serve him because I'm going to get this, or I want this, or whatever. And when God doesn't perform according to our expectations, guess what? Then we quickly look elsewhere for our answers. But then in that search for answers to our problems, Jesus really is not our Lord. And so we even compound it worse. Not only did we not want to make him our Lord, now he becomes even less our Lord. And we get further and further away from him. We're our own lords is what happens. And we're our own lords and the truth is there because we quick, so quickly turn to the world when Jesus doesn't seem to work the way we had hoped or wanted him to work. We go straight to the world. We can't do that, believers. We can't do that. We can't do that. But that's what these people were doing. And you, don't, and you never hear of the seven sons of of Siva or whatever, ever coming to Jesus or repenting. 
but you do hear of others. Whenever we use what works or we seek for what works without regard to the truth of Scripture, without regard to the specific will of Jesus in our minds and in our hearts to meet our particular need, we fall into pragmatism. That's what we do. And a pragmatic approach to life, even to ministry, it's going to bring a measure of success <coughs> and a type of success. But it's not going to bring revival, which is what we really need. But we're not, ever, we're not so certain always we're going to get, because you have to wait for it. See, also the trouble with this is that our passage showed us today, this is not the way the word of the Lord spreads and grows in power. The word of the Lord doesn't spread that way and grow in power because of pragmatic approaches. It doesn't. See, it doesn't. And when revival comes, Jesus, thank you, when revival comes, Jesus, knowing and experiencing him and his will for you and me in our relationships and in our life and our ministry, when revival comes, he becomes the top priority of our life. And our pragmatism will fall to the wayside. I actually was in ministry, and some of you have heard me say this before, and I still remember. I won't say when. It was years ago. <clears throat> Let's just say after a, a service that had a lot of power and strength and and drama to it and was wonderful. The person leading it was stepping off into the background and we met, me and another fellow worker, and this is what the person who led that said, man, we're, we do this so good, we don't even need Jesus to pull this off. Wow, it's true. Sometimes in the church, and in ministry and as believers, we get things down to a science. That's what pragmatism does. It looks for the recipe. It looks for the scientific steps. And you can produce something that looks like it's alive and living and it's dead. It's dead. But boy, does it feel good. And boy, does it feel like it's real. But really, it's not there. And it's not there because of the second thing, the second part. Because this is a really an identifying thing to whether revival has really come. All right? After the events of verses 13 through 16, after these events <coughs> of, the, of the demons putting a hurt on this guy, these guys, because they tried to use the name of Jesus and didn't know Jesus, it says the Jews and Greeks, more likely those who had already believed in Jesus, they were gripped with a holy reverence, it says, and a fear. And the name of Jesus was honored in a way it had not been honored before. Our scripture tells us that many of those who believed now came and openly confessed what they had done. And a number of them who practiced sorcery brought their scrolls together, burned them publicly. And it was over $5 million of stuff that they burned in that big bonfire. And the question has to be for some of us, weren't these people already believers? <coughs> weren't they? <coughs> Didn't they already repent and confess their sins? If Jason was here, he'd say, weren't these people already Methodists? <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> He's a Methodist. That's why he came from Methodist. He jokes. But, you know, you look at this and go, hold on a second here. But here's the reality, isn't it? Repentance, confession, and growth is a daily, weekly, and yearly process, is it not? 
A believer, as a believer, we're being transformed into the image of Jesus. I come to Christ into faith at a moment in time when I bow and confess my sins and submit to Jesus' lordship. That happens in a moment in time. But I become like Jesus and get transformed into his image over time. Over time. And so I've got to keep repenting and stay in the repented way. I've got to keep confessing and stay on the confession way. A believer is never aware just how much transforming work must be done in their life when they first believed. Were you ever aware? No. I thought after I first believed I was so on cloud and I thought, dude, I am just totally different. I have been changed. And I had been. But there was still... There were still things that had to be done. And boy, I'm now 61, and it's taken this many years to get to where I am now. And I'm not sure the job's going to be done until Jesus comes back. I'm almost certain of that. Because I'm still being transformed into the image of him. And so are you. Wow. The preaching of Paul, these extraordinary miracles that he performed, they didn't garner the response that came. From these people who publicly repented in heart and lifestyle but there was a witness what garnered this change it was the witness of the big mouth demon that exposed the sin right he exposed the truth and the sin to these pragmatic ephesian disciples god used a big mouth demon who should have just kept his mouth shut and then whooped on these people anyhow but no he's got trash talk too because that's kind of how they are and so they trash talk. And what that caused these Ephesians to do is to put together the pieces of the puzzle and come to a correct conclusion. This Jesus has power when it comes to true believers who have submitted their hearts and life to him and know him. But he's not an incantation like we used to use that word that we can use just whenever we want to. That's how we used to live. And Jesus is not that. Therefore, we better get our hearts and our lives right and our relationship with him right because he indeed truly is Lord of all. Amen? Amen. That's what they saw. That's what they said. <laughs> and it caused them to respond. Big time. They respond. I can still remember in the first years that I was following Jesus. I, I too said, boy, I had a dramatic change in my life. So many things that I repented of, so many things that got right. I confessed certain things to my parents and got my life right with them and with others. And it was great. But then I felt again early on, like within the next year or two, the need, the, really the need to publicly renounce and repent of my formal lifestyle and really of the things <coughs> that were a part of that lifestyle before I made that commitment to Christ. And so you know what I did? Likewise, I gathered up all the albums that used in eight tracks. Remember eight tracks? Some of you don't know, but there were eight tracks back then. I gathered them up along with books and magazines, clothing, photos, paraphernalia that I had stashed away. And I gathered all of them up and put them in a pile. I put gasoline all over them and lit them on fire. You could do that in my day because people could burn in their backyards back then. It'd be harder to do it again today. We had burn barrels and things like that. But I put them all together and I lit them on fire. And as I lit them on fire, I confessed again my sins before the Lord, 
my sinful lifestyle that these things represented, and I renounced those ways of living and being and thinking, and I repented in a much fuller way. I declared God's truth over them. I celebrated my freedom. The, I, I, I celebrated the freedom that I stood in now and the light and the truth, and I gave thanks, again, for what Jesus' death did for me and how his Holy Spirit had come in, to live in me and change me. It was wonderful. And it had some similarities to when I first repented and confessed. But it took me on again. It was another step forward. And what I began to learn as a young believer was how important revival, how important it is on an ongoing and periodic way in our walk and growing with the Lord. God has to intimately work time and time again. And that's why <coughs> the Bible says that we are to confess our sins and to keep Jesus as our focus, right? And to keep repenting of the sin that so easily entangles us. Because sin has a way of building up as we run through life. We sometimes have a way of leaking out all that God's done, and, and we can get a little dry, a little cold at times. Or there needs to be a greater work done in us to free us, to heal us. And God couldn't get at that at the beginning because there were so many other things that needed to be got at that he couldn't get there. And it would have really been too much for us, but we're ready now. And so we have this revival. Thank you. That continues on. Man, let me tell you something. <clears throat> you know, I know this is true, because if we could, and I'm not going to have you, but I want you to, when you get a chance, flip over to the book of, of Revelation in chapter 2. The first church you meet is the church in Ephesus. Forty years later, after this was written, some of you are like going, yeah, I know that. It's true. And Jesus came to these churches, and he came to the church in Ephesus and said, there are a lot of things you're doing right, and you're doing good, but what did he tell them? You've, you've left your first love. You have fallen. It says, therefore, see how far you have fallen and repent. See, they needed it 40 years later. They probably had to repent more times since between that time that they repent in Acts 19 and then in Revelation. We have to keep repenting. And we have to keep seeking for a new revival. Hallelujah. We need that kind of movement in our hearts and in our lives. I'm going to keep moving, okay? And, and I'm going to kind of truncate things a little bit. But, so that's our second point, that public repentance. Um, and that continual repentance. To see that happen. Because revivals have to happen over and over and over again. I caught you that time. I'm sorry. But here's the thir third sign, and you see this in verse 20. You see a hunger for God's word and the spread of God's word. It moves. Verse 20 tells us, in this way, because of what God had brought and God had done, in this way, the word of the Lord spread widely and it grew in power. God's, you're not going to have a hunger for his word unless God brings revival in your life. You know, if you want more of a hunger, you've got to ask God to bring that. You need that power. 
You need that love. You need that work of him, his movement. He knows where to move exactly. You need that. And then his word's going to spread, not just in you, but through others. It's so important and so needed. I'm going to come to our conclusion here. Leonard Ravenhill, in our conclusion, we have this on the board, this quote from him. There's a couple quotes here in regards uh, to revival. Amen. He wrote this, you never have to advertise a fire. Isn't it true? I got up this other morning because I thought there was a fire down at our street because there was all these emergency vehicles and it was two in the morning and it looked like flames flickering on my back window. Now, you don't have to advertise that. I'm going to go check that out. I went to my backyard, went to my front yard. I, I went all over the place trying to find out what's going on because you don't have to advertise that. And it says you don't ever have to advertise a fire. Everyone comes running when there's a fire. Likewise, if your church or you as a believer are on fire, you will not have to advertise it. It says the community will already know it. They will know it. People around you will begin to see it. A.W. Tozer also remarked this, have you noticed how much praying for revival has been going on of late and how little revival has resulted? He goes, this great man of faith says, I believe the problem is not that we've, we, we've been trying to, I, I believe the problem is that we've been trying to substitute praying for obeying. And it simply will not work. It won't work. Prayer is important. But obedience is just as important. Because God's going to be saying something to you as he's bringing revival. Yeah. Paul has turned this city on its head not because he was an eloquent speaker. We know from elsewhere in scripture he was not. It wasn't because he had unlimited resources. We know that he was working his trade and one of the means that the Lord used to work through were his sweaty clothes from his labor. It wasn't because Ephesus had hit rock bottom and they were looking for anything that would give them hope. No, rather, God moved mightily in Ephesus in response to obedience, faith, and the prayer of Paul and his partners there. God brought revival. And things change. Charles Finney once said this, and I love it, because I used to say something like this, and then I saw that he said it. He said it before me because he's a lot older dude. Uh, but I think that probably every believer sees this. A revival is nothing else than a new beginning of obedience to God. I used to say, you know what? A revival is no further away from you and me than one step of obedience. Obedience to what he's really telling you to do. That's what sparks revival. Amen. Amen. It's a new beginning of obedience and response to the revealed presence, truth, and movement of God. So again, as we close this morning, revival is a spiritual awakening. You can't awaken yourself. How many people, you know, but you've got to have some life there. But only people who have life present can be revived, Right? Right? So if you don't have life, you need to be saved and brought back to life in salvation. But if you do have salvation in life, even though you're waning, you've got to have a spiritual awakening. And only God brings, can do that. You can't. Nothing you do pragmatically will make that happen. And yet God may use some pragmatic steps to get you there. But he's leading it. Not you. 
and you don't know the combination or the recipe for it. He does. So we have to be humble enough to recognize that. It's, a, it's this renewed passion for God and devotion to him. It's not manufactured from your own goodness or nobility or character. It's from this love that's within you and this work of God. And, it's a re- and it results in repentance, in change of how you live, in the power of your witness, and the response of others to God's movement in you. Doesn't that sound good? That's wonderful. I want you to stand with me as we close in prayer. Join me as we seek revival. Hallelujah. Because we need it. We need it. It matters. Jesus said to the church in Ephesus in Revelation 2, look it, I'm I'm for you, I'm with you. You don't repent, and your lampstand will be removed. So there are always consequences to our actions and our attitudes and our responses. We have to take it seriously. But we don't want to take ourselves so seriously. We have to take the Lord seriously. And you can't manufacture it. It's going to have to come from him. But if you'll join me in praying for this revival, let's pray for it. Let's ask for it to fall and come. Let's ask for God to do something that only he can do. And we can give glory to him because it wasn't anything that we did on our own. But we, were, we graciously received it when God brought it. Amen? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, come bless your people again. Lord, we need you. How we need you. We need your work. We need your movement. We need your power to come upon us today. We need your, the work of your spirit, the counsel of your spirit, to guide us to repent where we need to repent to open our hearts again to you and to your word to cause us to honor you. To cause your word to spread in our lives into greater holiness, power, and truth. Lord, bring revival this morning, we pray. Bless your people because we know it's your desire. Come and move, Lord, that others would come to know you. God, make us a city on the hill with so much light that cannot be missed. Set us on fire and help us to see that as we come to you and we receive that fire, we don't have to to seek after the world's solutions for church growth or, or discipleship or becoming the leader God wants you to be or whatever the case may be. But your power and your presence can do it. You may use some of these things. But there will be no denying it was your power and presence that did it. So, Lord God, we pray for that revival and that blessing on our church. We pray that it would even start with people that aren't even here today. Uh, You know, take care of our believers that are out on vacation or sick or traveling or whatever. And may it just start with all of us. It's in Jesus' name we all pray. And we say, amen.